Chris and I switching it up. Uh, this is the fourth Sunday of the Advent season as we come into Christmas. Um, so I just thought it would be appropriate to today take a look at the symbolism of the season of Advent um, because so many of the gifts of the Advent season that we're meant to reflect on have seemed so hard to find this year and it's been hard to keep things like hope and joy front of mind with all the political infighting and all of the uh, pandemic issues and it's just been a rough year for a lot of people so I thought we could uh, take a look and, and reflect on some of those. Um, as it is a themed message and not our, our usual chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, we'll be hopping around a little bit, but for those of you who would like to have your Bibles open to the uh, bigger chunks of the scripture that we're going to read, uh, you can open up to Isaiah chapter 9 and Psalm 136. So that was Isaiah chapter 9 and Psalm 136. Um, since I know there's a couple people from El Salvador watching, si quieres abrir sus Biblios a Isaías capítulo 9 y también al Salmo 136. Estos van a ser los pasajes que vamos a repasar durante esta predicación. Okay, so um, Advent is actually one of the earliest. Uh, seasons that was established in the church uh, when it was founded. Uh, in the earliest centuries of the church, the church year actually was considered to appropriately start on Christ's birthday, on Christmas. And so Advent was considered the preparatory time to get ready for that and to the time to prepare their hearts. Um, the color that you'll see is like what I'm wearing. It's purple, traditionally. Um, it's the color of kingship. It's the color of royalty, um, and it's also, as we learned as we've been studying Leviticus and Exodus, um, that it's also the color that were used in the high priest's garments. They used purple and blue and red thread to uh, sew the high priest's garments, and we all know that you have purple, and then if you have blue and red, what color do you get? Purple. Purple. Yay. So, um, in the Christian tradition, it is also the color for uh, repentance, and it's the color for reflection, which is exactly what we are supposed to be doing at Advent. So it's a reminder for Christians to take some stock and reflect on the lead up to the celebration that is Christ's first Advent. Um, a lot of people know that because that's a standing part of the church. I know as a kid, I always looked forward to the Advent calendars myself because it was the one time of year I could eat chocolate before I was, had to have <laughs> breakfast, even if it was bad chocolate. So, uh, but uh, the most famous symbol uh, for this season is, of course, the Advent wreath. Um, it's usually made out of evergreen, which is the same reason we have Christmas trees. It's for the eternal life, even in adversity. Um, or sometimes they'll make it ivy, which biblically represents faithfulness um, and it also eternal life. Um, it always has four candles on it, like those. Uh, three of them are purple and one of them is pink. There is, uh, sometimes you'll see a white candle, a large tall white candle in the center, which represents Christ that would eventually get lit on Christmas Eve slash Christmas Day because that would be when he entered the world and the light would become um, each of the candles represents one of the four gifts 
of the Advent season. And the idea being that you reflect on each one for a week at a time. So I thought we would just light the candles one at a time and uh, go over each of those gifts. The first candle uh, that would have been lit is the candle of hope. And appropriately enough, it was also called the prophet's candle. Um, often we consider the Christmas story to be either starting, you know, the Advent stories of the Gospels in the Gospels of Luke or in Matthew. But actually, the foundations of Christ's first Advent were laid all the way back in the Old Testament. And it's there that we find all of the prophecies and uh, the confirmations that we can use to confirm that Christ was the Messiah and confirm that his divinity there, uh, the bulk of which is found in Isaiah. Before we consider the Old Testament prophecies and, and take a look at some of them, though, I want to just zoom out for a second and compare the hope that the Jewish tradition and the, the Christian tradition growing out of that have for hope versus what the pagans around them saw as hope. Believe it or not, hope hasn't always been considered a good thing. A lot of the Gentile societies around Judea, hope and delusion are actually the same word. The Greeks, as you'll recall, famously used hope in the story of Pandora's box, where all the evils of the world were in a jar, and Pandora got curious and opened them, and famine and war and pestilence and disease and plague and everything else got sent out into the world to do their thing. But in her panic to get to try and get something in the jar, she slammed the lid down and hope was still trapped. Which means that hope was considered, like war and famine and plague, one of the evils. And it was actually considered a good thing that she stayed trapped. Because what that meant was man could see the world as it is and didn't have to bother with, you know, unnecessary feats of heroics or even, you know, find that light in the darkness that they were able to just say, well, yeah, life's awful. Okay. So we should ask ourselves, why did they have this pessimism that we don't have today? Well, they were focused on the world, and the world can be an awful place. They weren't focused on an eternal truth of God. The best that it was going to go for the pagans was they were going to have an okay life here, and then you got to go to Hades in some dank, dark cave for the rest of eternity, assuming you behaved yourself. As Christians, on the other hand, who are looking to a God of love and fellowship and perfection, we can take that unbeliever's despair at hope and make it one of our greatest weapons against the enemy. And we can see this very clearly when we look in the book of Isaiah. At the time of Isaiah's writing, the year was around 740 BC. He actually prophesied for decades, so that's the median age. Um, by now, Israel had, the, the kingdom of Israel had already fractured and it had become two kingdoms. In the north, you had ten of the tribes still calling themselves Israel. And they had set up a new capital and a golden calf idol and had backslid like you read about in Exodus uh, at their capital in Samaria. And in the south, we had uh, the kingdom of Judah with the original capital at Jerusalem. You had Assyria to the north and to the west in the Fertile Crescent. And you had Egypt to the south, both kind of rising and regaining and looking to compete for influence. 
and the Israelites were frankly more interested in fighting each other than they were any Gentile interlopers. And most leaders in Judah started to look to Egypt for help when the northern kingdom got crushed by Assyria instead of turning to God. So Isaiah's main focus was on trying to get Israel to finally realize you have to rely on God. You can't rely on human allies. Um, so most of his prophecies dealt with Israel's sin and God's patience running out and um, more dealing with the loss of the Jewish homeland. But in the middle of all this prophecy and actual death and blood and suffering, there are some amazing examples about Christ's advent and hope that show us that God's desire wasn't just to punish. He was trying to correct and bring people back into fellowship. And this amazing seed that he plants in chapter 9 is this seed of hope for future redemption that it was going to be once and for all. All of that in the middle of the ten of the tribes getting, of the twelve tribes of Israel getting scattered, there's this hope that God is going to come through. It's something worth thinking about in our times. That in order to plant, sometimes the soil has to be tilled up. And you have to plow under the stuff that you don't need that's already growing. The mustard seed that God planted that day, as Christ said in his parable, it's the smallest grain, but it can end up growing into the largest plant in the garden. And the mustard seed that God planted that day with Isaiah is one of the best known Old Testament prophecies. If you grew up Catholic or Episcopalian or Lutheran or Methodist, you probably heard this recited every single Christmas, and you can probably almost quote it from memory with me. Um, but here we go. It's Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoicing as they divide the spoils. For you have broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used as fuel for the fire and for burning. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This passage would become more and more important in the Jewish history in the centuries that would follow. For them it became a hope of uh, continued communion with God, even through the storms of the exile, and seeing Solomon's temple sacked, and the rebuilding of the temple eventually, and through the years of the Roman conquest. It was seven and a half centuries that that seed slowly took root 
and grew and took shape until it finally came to fruition. And of all places, a stable in a dusty little one-camel town called Bethlehem. Hope is so powerful because it is so hard to kill. It's usually not logical. It almost always defies our rational judgment. It's impervious to our expectations, and it's immune to perceived difficulties. It can even survive the passage of time unscathed. It can give us the strength to press on and endure what is beyond normal, mortal enduring. I recently finished a book uh, that was called The Hundred Year Walk. It's a fantastic book. I recommend anybody who is uh, interested in any degree of history to check it out. Uh, it is about the Armenian Christians that were led on their death marches in Turkey during World War I. Now, if you think of World War II, the, the ethnic cleansing programs in Nazi-occupied Europe, and the Bataan Death March by the Japanese, it's kind of that all rolled into one. And a lot of the testimonies of the survivors talked about their circumstances causing them to question everything. Friendships, family relations, and even their faith. But it talks about them too, about never being able to just give in and accept the faith that was coming and just quash that final spark of hope out. And that that little spark was always enough to keep them going. In the long marches in the Syrian desert, when someone would be near to collapse from hunger and thirst, they would spontaneously break into a song. And then others around them would join in, and they would somehow stumble into that next camp and be able to get some kind of sustenance to make it one more day. Hope Springs Eternal is one of those parables that we, you will often hear bandied about. In our house, it's usually when a dog is looking at us uh, while we're cooking expecting a scrap of food. <laughs> but uh, it, it never happens. I'm a very neat cook, usually. But why is it eternal? Why does hope really spring eternal? Well, it's because of the second candle. The second gift of Advent is love. And that makes total sense, because what is our hope as Christians, our hope is the redeeming power and love of Jesus Christ. That a loving God took the effort to reconcile us to him and save us from the death caused by our sins. Because he knew that our strength would fail and that our own resources would fall unimaginably short of that task. I'm sure that if we have studied Leviticus over the last couple weeks and months, uh, a lot of you have probably done what I did, and as we rattle off things that you'd have to be spending a goat or a pigeon or an epoch of grain, uh, that tally adds up really quickly, and uh, the goats and pigeons I would need to cover all the infractions in my life would have been substantial, and I probably would not have had a herd very long what I concluded, and I'm sure most of you, if you're being honest, probably concluded the same. But if we dig a little bit deeper, too, and we look at those sin offerings talked about in Leviticus, we can also see not so much that God's looking for us to give him something. He doesn't need a ram's blood. 
he doesn't need the pigeons, he doesn't need the bull, he doesn't need the incense. He made everything that exists in all of those already. He is complete in himself. What he really wants is to have everybody's participation in a relationship with him. He wants men and women, native and stranger, old and young, rich and poor. In fact, those offerings that he decrees for the poorest of the poor were doves and pigeons. If you couldn't afford to buy them from a breeder, you could go catch them in the wild. God would provide for your reconciliation to him if needed be, despite your wrongdoing to him through your sin, as long as you were interested in repairing the relationship with him. And ultimately, we can say, as John 3.16 does, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Abraham's hope in Genesis was proved true when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac, and he declared, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. Again, why did he do this? Because he loves us. Recall when we studied 2 Peter and we looked at that stair step of attributes to try and refine your faith? We looked at John chapter 4 as part of the explanation. And in, in it, he says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. It's not a question of God is loving. God is love. It's his essence. It's not just a verb that he does. It is part of his now. That is why, as Christians, we are called on again and again to do two things above all else. Love our God with all our heart and mind and soul, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is how we show the Lord that we want to have his presence in our lives. And that is how we show others the difference in a Christian life versus a life lived for the world. We show the difference in our way of life, not by getting bigger trophies for sports, not by getting more recognition and climbing higher up the chain of command at work, not by accumulating bigger piles of stuff to show off, and that we can't take with us when we die. The difference that we show is in how we love. We show our faith when we demonstrate love. We love bigger, we love deeper, we love despite being hurt or betrayed. We love despite other people's mocking, and we love despite other people's hate. We love big on earth because we have an eternal love in our lives moving through the Holy Spirit in us. This isn't just human affection. This isn't romantic or physical eros love that the Greeks talked about. It's not brotherly Philadelphia love. It's agape love, the self-sacrificing love that gives everything and expects nothing in return except itself. Let me say that again. Agape love seeks nothing in return but love. God is love. Through Christ, 
he gave all of humanity, he, all of himself, on the cross. So that our sins don't keep us from his presence. And the only thing he asks is for you to act in love towards him and respect his way of life and his other creations. All of your fellow man. All of your fellow man. And the giving and the receiving of that kind of love is what brings us to the next Advent gift. Joy. The pink candle. Because, you know, even churches have to mix it up a bit. <laughs> um, in fact, traditionally, you actually only see pink two days of the whole year uh, in traditional church services. Once on the third Sunday in Lent, I'm sorry, the fourth Sunday in Lent, and the third Sunday in Advent. It's the color of God becoming flesh. It's the color of joy found in the new renewed fellowship with God after we've repented and accepted that gift. Joy is kind of that result of the equation, hope plus love. It's the end result in our faith, finding God's love waiting when we go seeking it. Anyone who already knows Christ can attest to those times when the presence of God really comes near. It can sometimes come on with like the intensity of a flood. But whether you get it in a trickle or you get it in a tide, they almost always describe the sensation as being filled to the brim with contentment and happiness. Not just feeling good, but true, boundless joy. A lot of times in life, it can seem that moments like that are few and far between. Because one of the greatest ways the enemy can succeed in successfully eroding our communion with God is to keep our joy from standing around. Everyone from the church who was there in uh, our trip to El Salvador will recall Aneta, who was the woman from Germany who had come. We, with her and some of the other guests, we had had this incredible week of prayer and fellowship and really long days, but there was this sense of real purpose and of being part of something that was God-given. And when she went home, she got to the airport in San Salvador, her original flight got canceled. Okay, well, she was trying to get home for some big family events, so she was on a bit of a timetable, but things happen. She gets redirected, and she paid a fortune to upgrade to another airline. And as she's sitting there in the waiting area, she gets pulled over by the staff and said, oh, your flight's going through Canada. You actually can't get on the flight because Canada requires a visa that you have to apply for in advance, even if you're just transiting through the airport in Toronto. So we're going to have to figure out another flight. You may not make it home. Obviously, she was frustrated. But what she told Daniel on the phone after all this was, I just had no, I gotta take a deep breath, because this is just the devil trying to steal my joy. He doesn't want me to take that home, because joy is useful and it's contagious. That's an amazing approach to hard times. Push past that negative that the world is constantly slinging at us, and when other people's response to our love is abuse or invective, 
or instead of moving continuously forward, something comes along and pushes us off our line and we find ourselves scrambling back into position. When we fail despite our sincerest efforts, when we feel the ice starting to crack under our feet or the quicksand rising to cover us, to just pause and pull back and say, nah, not today, Satan. You don't get to take my joy today. My joy, my real joy, comes from God's love. And there's more of that to feed my soul than the rest of everything in the universe combined. My hope is sound because my foundation is on the immovable rock that doesn't fail. So no matter what the world's storm is, it will eventually pass. But God's light will always outshine the darkness. And when we can declare that with confidence, we've lit the fourth candle. The last gift of Advent is peace. When I was doing this sermon, it struck me about what an incredible symbol the flame is for the spirit when we talk about it. It banishes shadow. If you don't respect it, it can burn you. And it's nebulous. It's clearly there. You can interact with a flame. But yet, there's some parts of it you can't really define. You can't say where a flame ends and the light starts and where that light suddenly ends. It's not like a rock or a table or some other worldly thing. And in a dark room, a flame draws the eye and it focuses the mind. And the rest of the room just kind of fades out to nothing. And when we have that deep communion with God through Christ, that's what our peace can be like. It becomes that focus of our thought, and it becomes that center of our vision. And anything else swirling around in the dark becomes inconsequential in comparison to that flame. Our peace and comfort is in God's light not the shadowy swirlings in the periphery here on earth. One of the titles of Christ that we saw in Isaiah is the Prince of Peace. So as followers of Jesus, we always kind of have that expectation that our lives are going to be calm and tranquil, tranquil, and that we can talk properly. <laughs> and when we have struggles in our lives, many tend to think that they've done something wrong or that somehow God isn't being faithful. But it's in those moments when that joy is lost, they're overlooking what Christ said, and especially said well in John. Being at peace doesn't mean not having hardships in our lives. Christ explicitly tells us over and over again, that's not the peace he is offering. His peace means that eventually the world's hardship will end, and that God's love is greater and more enduring than the world's hardship. In verse 11 of chapter 16 in John, Jesus says, The prince of this world stands condemned. If Christ, as the prince of peace, is with us, then who's going to stand against us? Hardship may have that way of feeling like it goes on forever. And joy 
can seem as ephemeral as mist on a desert morning. But God's time scale isn't a human one. Think about those Jews in the Old Testament when they first heard the word from Isaiah. It was 740 years before they actually saw the first advent of Christ. Put that in perspective for you. That is 37 generations. If Christ were born today, that would have meant our ancestors first heard the word in 1279 A.D. The Billy Graham of the day was Thomas Aquinas. The only person playing Marco Polo in the pools of the world was Marco Polo. <laughs> Edward I hadn't gotten around to founding the Order of the Garter in England, which is now the world's oldest knightly order. Imagine telling them that we would have seen people walk on the moon and in a couple years would probably be on Mars. That's a long time to wait for something to be fulfilled. But as Martin Luther King said it best, the arc of the universe may seem long, but it bends to truth. And that's why we can claim peace in the storm. The storms are of the world, and the world is nothing compared to God. That is why Christ spoke over and over again about keeping our eyes fixed where they should be on God. In 1633 of John, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So let's take joy in that, an eternal joy because we rest on a foundation of love eternal. And if our foundation is eternally secure, then our hope is never in vain. We don't have to fear the world's dark. We have the light of Christ within us forever and ever. If you are hearing this today, and you're longing to have that light in your life that can't be extinguished, then I invite you to ask Christ into your heart. Let him break the staff that the world tries to lay on your back and switch out your bloody, sin-stained clothes for spotless white ones. Follow that ember of hope that has been laying quiet in your heart and let the Holy Spirit fan it into a life-giving and life-changing flame. Before we close, I want to end with reading of Psalm 136. I stumbled on it, and I think it's a good tie-in to the history of the Exodus and Leviticus that we have been looking at. And it also reminds us why God is to be celebrated in our Advent season today. It is rarely, for the Psalms, a call and response prayer. Your lines is, His love endures forever. So here we go. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. 
His love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens? His love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters? His love endures forever. Who made the great lights? His love endures forever. The sun to govern the day? His love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night? His love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt? His love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them? His love endures forever. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm? His love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder? His love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it? His love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the sea? His love endures forever. To him who led the people through the wilderness? His love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings? His love endures forever. And killed the mighty kings? His love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites. His love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. His love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance. His love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel. His love endures forever. He remembered us in our low estate. His love endures forever. And he freed us from our enemies. His love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Lord, as your love endures forever, may our hope and our joy in you stay with us forever. Not just today, not just in this Advent season, but always in our hearts. So that through the Holy Spirit, we can pour out your love to one another and to a weary world that so desperately needs the hope and the light and the joy and the peace that you can give it. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Love you guys. Have a great final week in the lead up to Christmas. Hope to see you again on Christmas Eve. Have a blessed weekend.